My name is Ralph, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm still a little affected by the countdown. Um, and Bill, Bill over here talking about fish jumping out the sea. and <laughs> I don't know whether that's a good or bad thing, Bill. I want to thank the best hosts in the world, uh, Bruce and Carrie. I want to thank you. Um, A couple of weeks ago, I was sitting on the bottom of the world. I was out in Australia, and I was at this five-star hotel. And um, I was sitting up eating breakfast, and I was at a window. And I was sitting in a seat right here, and this window was there. And in this five-star hotel, I was just there one day. And it's the kind of hotel where when you check in, they know your name. People, the, the doormen, the bellhops, and so I'm sitting in there. Mr. White, and I'm sitting there, and I'm looking at the sun come up. And a guy came up. He had a name tag named Arnold. And Arnold came to me, and he said, Are you enjoying your tea, sir? Are you enjoying your tea, sir? I'm in Australia. I'm in a five-star hotel. And a guy came up in an Australian accent and asked me, Are you enjoying your tea, sir? Um, I like countdowns. I like celebrations of recovery. Reminds me of stuff. I like to see the people who kept the light on for me when they stand up. And I appreciate it. All those who stood up, I saw you. Fred, I saw you. I saw you. And no disrespect, Eric. And no disrespect, Tim. But Carrie, I came to talk to you. Baby, with six days, I came to talk to you. We're storytelling society. And when you get in this deal, this big book of ours, and I hope that most of the people are new friends, we got a new section right here. It's a lot of people from one on down over here in this section. I'm going to be looking over here a lot tonight, my people. And um, when you get into the book, and you heard the speakers referencing, I was listening um, this afternoon to Sherry on fire you know I can tell got this book in the hand on fire you know new way of life new way of living stuff's going on acquisition on fire you know lit me up I love going and listening to the Alanine speakers if you miss Alanine speakers you know you missing sometimes the high point of the convention you know and uh, this year's, Pauline brought it. You know, she did not disappoint. Insightful, you know, um, crazy. But that's. <laughs> but she owned it. You know what I'm saying? That she owned it. So we, you get points for owning crazy. You know, it's yours. And um, 
but brought it, lit the place up. And my boy Tim, um, when I get the opportunity to stand in front of my fellowship and I get the opportunity to follow one of my elders, uh, I'm humble. I'm humble. And you gave an AA talk. You know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm from size. I'm, I'm, I'm not a crying man, but I, was, I had stuff in my eyes last night, Tim. You know, that's, that's what I'm saying. Um, and he's from the cradle. So he brought us a message from the cradle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, but I'm going back to my host. Because I'm not a guy that takes this deal for granted. You know, we have a three legacy program for those of you. And, and a lot of words we use for new friends, sometimes people don't um, clarify them. And so what the hell is a legacy anyway, Ralph? Are you leaving me something? Well, what? Yeah, we are. You know, we have a three legacy program, unity, recovery, and service. And the unity, you know, is, is our meetings, our fellowship. You know, and I fell in love with the fellowship before I even got, you know, into the program of recovery. You know, meetings are easy for me to go to. We're storytelling society. I grew up reading books and I grew up watching TV. And you cannot find better stories than the stories that you find in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. So it's never been hard for me to go to meetings, you know. And we continue to tell our stories. And baby, as much as you, I love you telling your story, as much as you into that book. And sometimes when you get into the book, you have an inclination. And you'll hear speakers say it. I'm not going to share a long drunk log. Everybody knows how to drink. That's not why we tell our stories. Make no mistake about it. That's not why we tell our stories. Over the course of this weekend, you've got a lot of information. You got a lot of information from the speakers, and you got information when you had the meetings after the meetings and the meetings in the halls. You know, it's a lot of information to be gleaned at the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's not the power. That's not the real power and the real strength of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and the reason we tell our stories, we're a storyteller society, and the reason we tell our stories, because even though you come, baby, come for the information, but stay and look for the transformation. It's transformative what goes on in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and you know, I, we had the opportunity to sit with Dan at dinner. And Dan was saying, you know, sometime I don't tell my story, you know, because, you know, you, you know, I've talked to you and Leslie more than but the stories are so powerful because Dan looks like uh, Wally Cleaver, you know. <laughs> he looks like the beef. And so when he was sitting at the table, I'm like, oh, he got one of these. And then he started telling me my story. I mean, his story. And I was like, ooh, don't let the smooth taste fool you, you know. And I was like, oh, my God, you know. But the reason, the transformative stories in Alcoholics and I, I see them the best in the women. I see them the clearest in the women in the rooms. I will be looking around the room, and I'll look at you. I'll be like, what is this soccer mom doing up in here? And then you hit the podium, and then you get to talk, and I'll be like, ooh, please don't leave us, you know. And that's the, you know. You bloom and you blossom and you transform. That is Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was saying, this three legacy program ours, I fell in love with the program before, with the fellowship before I fell in love with the meetings. And if you go to enough meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, at least in my neck of the woods, you'll hear some common themes. And one of the things you keep hearing about it means is the 12 steps. And I'm the kind of guy, why be in a 12-step program and not practice the 12 steps? So as a result of that, I got interested in it. I started, some people took us through the big book of Alcoholics anonymous my brother my boy and i page by page line by line we started a big book workshop at my mom's house so many years ago and and as a result of that going through the 12 steps i got what it is that we get 
having had a spiritual awakening as the result. It don't say having had a new car, having had the wife, having had a boatload of money, none of that. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. You know, and I got what it is that we get. And what do you do with a woke up spirit? Third legacy, you put it in the service. And that's the people that know the secret now, Alcoholics Anonymous, I see you. I've seen you all weekend. You know, those are the ones, uh, I call them the shadow soldiers. They work in the dark and they work out of the spot. I'm doing the spotlight work in Alcoholics Anonymous right now. All eyes on me, everybody looking at me, but the shadow soldiers, the ones that were sitting at the registration table, the ones that stood up the first night when they said, who's on the board? The ones that work for, you know, a year on the two conferences that you guys put on this year. They're the ones who go out. It's the World Series that just finished. And somebody during the World Series got up out of their bed, went to the hall, fired up the coffee pot, and they waited for Ralph White to show up. Super Bowl Sunday, they get out of their bed, they go to the hall, they fire up the coffee pot, and they wait for Ralph White to show up. Seventh game of the NBA Finals, they get out their bed, they go to the hall, they fire up the coffee pot, and they wait for Ralph White to show up. They go in our jails, and they go in our institutions, and they go in our treatment facilities, and they look for Ralph White. And I am so grateful to the men and women who were here before me that kept the light on for a drunk like me. I still get amazed by that. They go to the airport, and they take out of their time, and they come, and they wait, and they do for me. And I just want to talk about my fellowship. There was a guy back in the 30s suffer from this thing that we suffer from. He had some money. His family had money. They said, we'll throw money at the problem. And so Roland Hazard traveled to see the preeminent Shrink of the day. He went to see Dr. Carl Jung, and he went across the water to see him. Jung was over in Europe. Roland's people had money, and Roland was a businessman making money, and there was no Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, I'm going to go to this doctor. I'm going to go to this psychiatrist, and he's going to fix me. And he went and he stayed with Young for about, you know, close to a year. And Young did what it is that shrinks do. Probably shrunk him real well. You know, Roland understood his inner child, you know, understood the innermost workings of his brain, knew all his triggers, got all that kind of stuff. And he said, I'm cool. I'm going home, and I'm going to be okay. And he got on the boat to go home, didn't even make it back to the States, Roland drunk. And he did what I would do if I had spent good money with a doctor. He went back to the doctor. He said, Doc, I need to holler at you. I gave you all my money, and this didn't even take. Talk to me. What happened? And Young said this. He said, Roland, I tripped. He said, I misdiagnosed your case. He said, you present like a lot of other illnesses present. You present like manic depressive. You present like schizophrenic. You present like bipolar. But what you really are is a chronic alcoholic. And I've never seen a case like yours respond to the methods I've tried. You know, Roland was like, Doc, you wait till I spend all my money and tell me this? Dude, is there any hope for me? You know, and the doctor said, Roland, I know what you need, but the methods I've employed, and, 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 and Young said the same thing that Dr. Silkworth later would say when we have our book and it's in the doctor's opinion. Young and Silkworth both said, dude, I know what you suffer from. 
I know what it is that you need. You need some act right, get right. I've been trying to put some act right, get right in you. They didn't call it that. They called it a psychic check. But I've been trying to put that in you and my methods have failed. I ain't never said. He said, Doc, is it any hope? And, this, and, and Young, check this out. Young said this to Roland. Young said, every now and then, here and there, there have been what I like to call vital spiritual experiences. You know, I ain't seen one myself, but I've heard about them. And in those cases, rare as they are, every now and then people recover from what it is that you brought to me. Roland said, okay, I go to church. You know, I, I'm, I, I'll be cool. He said, I don't know, Roland. That might not spell the vital spiritual experience. It ain't stop you from drinking yet. But I would suggest you go back home. If you're part of any denomination, if you're part of affiliated with any religion, I suggest you get with those people and hope you get struck by lightning. Roland returned. He went to the Oxford groups of the day, and he got struck by lightning. He got struck by lightning. And something happened to Roland Hazard. It didn't stick, but something happened. And God worked through Roland to work through another one of the vital cogs in this wheel that we later call Alcoholics Anonymous. And Roland worked through Abby Thatcher, and Abby Thatcher worked through our founder. And that idea of a vital spiritual experience that happens every now and then, here and there, we call occurrences like that that are very infrequent, very rarely seen. We can't explain why or how they happen. We call that phenomenon, and we call that a miracle. We call that a miracle. Something happened when Roland Hazard met Abby Thatcher, who met a New York hustler, who met an Akron physician and who created this big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And somewhere in that book, what has been, trans, what has been transmitted through all these years is somehow the replication of the spiritual experience. And Bill Wilson calls a gathering like us, where it's not every now and then, where it's not here and there, where it's gatherings like us all over the planet right now. He calls that a wholesale miracle. I believe in a couple of things. I believe in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe in the program of recovery that's outlined in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe in the power that you guys have introduced me to through the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I still believe in miracles. And I'm going to tell you about it. I grew up in South Central Los Angeles, and I'm one of six boys. We, I stayed in a little two-bedroom apartment. Moms and pops stayed in one room, six boys in three bunk beds in the other room. And my earliest memory of my old man was he was an alcoholic. I didn't want to be like him. My father wasn't abusive and he wasn't violent. He was an absentee drunk. And every other Friday you knew he would not show up with a check. Really fast forward and my old man got put out the house when I was eight or nine years old. My mom started raising six boys by herself. I don't know about you, but when I grew up, ideal family life, we took it from the TV programs of the day and the TV programs that showed ideal families when I was a kid. Ozzie and Harriet, Leave it to Beaver, My Three Sons, you know, Donna 
read wasn't jumping off in my house. When you're grown, you get something that's called perspective, and perspective works like this. you got a mom that raised six boys by herself. In the 60s, my mom was on welfare. Old Southern Baptist sister, you know, she was on welfare with these six boys, and my mom refused to settle for a lot. And she put herself back through high school, and she put herself through college, and she worked two jobs, and she took in clothes that she washed and ironed for other folk. And when you're grown, you look back on your life and say, damn, I had a hell of a mom. Look how she sacrificed the raise of six boys. But when you're a kid about nine or ten years old and you come home from school on a Wednesday afternoon and you got a couple of your partners with you and you hit the front door and mom's in the living room with an ironing board up and a rag on her head, you don't feel proud. You feel ashamed and embarrassed and you stop bringing partners home from school and if your name is Ralph, you start living in the prison I've lived in much of my life and that's the prison of what I think you think about me. I don't know what you think about me but I'm trapped in what I think you think about me and I will do whatever it takes to shape and form and mold your opinion of Ralph. I'll wine you, I'll dine you, I'll woo you, I'll con you, I'll bully you, I'll manipulate you, I'll buy you. Please like me. Now, I don't particularly have to like your behind, but please like me. You know, so I'm, I'm, I'm growing up like that. And if you go to enough meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, you'll hear some common themes in Alcoholics Anonymous. And one of the common themes that you'll hear from most of our members is I never felt like I fit in. And that's not a part of my story. I'm a little guy. I like a lot of attention. I've never been interested in fitting in. I've always wanted to stand out. And as a result of that, I achieved and I accomplished a couple of things in life. Every single one of you had me in your classroom. I was usually class president, student body president, straight A student, teacher's pet, played ball, made all-stars on the outside. I should have been okay on the inside. I've always felt like if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. Yeah, I was teacher's pet. Yeah, I was straight A student. I would have traded it all in if I could have been cool. If I just could have been cool, because in my neighborhood, it was a whole lot more currency placed on cool than on smart. Because the cats who were cool, they were in the bathroom smoking cigarettes, shooting dice, taking quarters from guys like me that brought extra quarters with them. And they knew how to talk to girls and fellas. Girls were always a mystery for me. I don't know why it is for you guys. You always seem to have a handle on this manhood thing early. I didn't know. Thirteen years old, cats would be talking about throwing down with girls already. I didn't know you guys were lying, but I'd be thinking to myself, how come I don't know? You know, how come I don't know? It took me a minute to get comfortable telling my story in Alcoholics Anonymous because this is the first place I ever landed where folk try to outbottom each other, right? You know, and um, <laughs> I wanted a penitentiary story, but I didn't want to visit the pen to get one. And, you know, and I'm not willing, you know, no, no disrespect, Tim. You did it for me. Thank you. You know, um, uh, and I ain't willing to go get another story right now. You know, my story's my story. Uh, I'm 16 years old. I'm scared of girls. I ain't never touched nothing, and I'm a shy guy. I get a girlfriend at 16 years old. You know, Ralph with a girlfriend don't mean the same thing it means for some of you cats. Ralph with a girlfriend simply means this. Ran with a crew of dudes, went with the same group of girls. One of my boys broke up with this girl. I waited a little time to pass to my other boy. I want to go with her. He came back and told me. She said, yeah, now nah, I got a girlfriend, right? <laughs> I'd had other girlfriends before, but this one actually knew she was my girlfriend. You know. <laughs> but I don't know what to do with her. But on this particular night, I'm out on a double date. You know, me and my girl in the back seat, older partner of mine, him and his girl in the front. Plastic cup of rum and coke come to the back seat this particular night. I drank it down real warm, rushed back to the top of my brain. All of a sudden, Ralph's hands started doing things they had never done. Mouth started saying things that had never said I'd arrive. Alcohol did for me what I couldn't do for myself. Gave me the courage to do and to be and to say things I wouldn't do, be and say without it. And I liked it. I liked it a lot. The big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, describes me in lots of places. New friends, we have a chapter in the front of our book 
book called The Doctor's Opinion. And there's a line in The Doctor's Opinion that jumped out at me first time I read it. Men and women like me drink essentially for the effect produced by alcohol. Recognize the first time. I understand this disease is progressive in nature, you know, because that's the way it showed up in my experience. You'll hear a lot of speakers. We heard them this weekend. I was listening to Sherry. I was listening to him talk about that first drink, and it's magical. It's transcendent. I made a commitment. I'm going to drink for the rest of my life. And then that ain't how it happened for me. I'm a kid. I'm 16 years old. You know, I'm, 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 I'm a square guy, and, and I just do it because that's what you do. You know, I'm in the backseat of the car, and the cup came. You know, and it came to the backseat, and I understand this disease being progressive in nature because that first night I drank, I didn't get pissy drunk. I didn't throw up all over myself. I didn't make a fool out of myself. I got a warm, tipsy feeling. I kissed and licked and sucked on my girl in some places I had never done before. You know, and that's how my drinking stayed. I would drink to go out on the weekends and party. I graduated from high school in 1971. I graduated to higher education in every sense of the word. 71, I'm still just drinking to go to parties. By the end of 71, I'm drinking during the day on the weekend to get ready for the party that night. By 1972, I'm drinking not only on the weekends, but now I'm drinking during the week after class, and I've added some non-addictive marijuana to the mix. By the end of 72, I'm drinking and I'm smoking herb and I'm selling herb. By 1973, drinking, smoking herb, selling herb, doing other drugs, doing it on a daily basis, could not have told me it was anything wrong with the way I was living. The big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, talks about at a certain point in my drinking career, I won't be able to tell the truth from the false. And the way that that worked for me is this. Isn't the way that I'm doing it? Isn't that the way everybody does it? Why would you be young with a bright future? with a little bit of money, didn't chase some women and get a load to come with the territory. In those days, man, if you came over my house and I couldn't offer you something to drink or something to smoke, I wasn't being a good host. And if I went over your house and you didn't do the same for me, not only weren't you being a good host, wasn't coming over your house no more. For what? <laughs> I got nothing to talk about. You know, no disrespect to our young friends. I don't mean new friends. Young friends. I'm glad I grew up in the era I grew up. I'm glad I came up in the time I came up. I came up in the late 60s or early 70s, man, you know, and it was a change in time. It was a, I went, the time I grew up, you would go to a concert, you didn't even have to know your neighbor, you just passing it, you know. I came up in those times, you know, and, and in 2018, you know, even though in 2018 you got to practice safe sex, you got deadly sexually transmitted diseases. Man, back in the early 70s, even though it was a change in time in this country, in some ways it seemed like a simpler time, man. I would go to a club, I'd have a one question interview for a girl. You get high? If not, next. I don't want to know your last name. I don't need to know your sign. I don't need to know who your mom is. Let's get to the basis of this relationship. Are you getting down like I'm getting down? And that's just the way that it was. You know, I came around the program. I, I know we got two categories of newcomers in the room tonight. We got new newcomers and we got used newcomers. And I was a used newcomer for a while, you know. And there are some thin lines in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. And one of the thinnest lines that makes all of the difference, there's a thin line between comparing and identifying. And my early efforts at doing this thing unsuccessfully, I would always compare and I'd never identify. And I couldn't find myself in the big book Alcoholics Anonymous and I couldn't find myself in any of you guys' stories. I would read the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. I read Bill's story. First thing I say, Bill was an older white guy. Psh, miss me with that one. You know, um, Bill, was a, Bill was a veteran of foreign wars. 
Vietnam era draft dodger. Bill was a Wall Street stockbroker. Check out the way I handle money. If you read Bill's story, he had a line there. He said, there had been no real infidelity. Miss me on that one, too. You know, so I would always find all the differences. And when I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous to stay, somebody taught me how to read the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. And they said, Ralph, the same way that you read the big book Alcoholics Anonymous is the same way that you listen to our members share at the meetings. When you read the big book Alcoholics Anonymous and when you listen to our members share their experience, strength, and hope, ask yourself three or four questions. Ask yourself, did I drink like he drank? Did I think like he thought? Did I feel like he felt? Or did I do what he did? And when I read Bill's story in the light of those questions, I found my story. I'm at this major university, man, in 71, and just like Bill, the drive for success was on. I proved to the world I was important. Just like him, drinks started taking a more important and exhilarating part of my life. Bill in his story says something strange. He said, out of this alloy of drink and speculation, out of this combination of his thinking and his drinking, he would later forge a weapon that would turn on him like a boomerang and all but cut him to ribbons. I don't talk like that. Old folk where I come from had a shortcut version. They used to say, trouble always starts out like fun. And when I'm up in the dorms drinking that Red Brown, drinking that Tyrolia, drinking that Boone's Heart, drinking that Spinata, drinking that Yago, drinking that Southern Comfort, you know, when I'm up in the dorms, you couldn't have told me alcohol was going to have its way with your boy. You couldn't have told me, but it did what it is that it does. And I stumbled up out of that school, you know, and I started working as a counselor for L.A. City Schools. And although I had the kind of job that should have allowed me to acquire what normal people acquire, I never did that. Snapshot of Ralph's life, this is when alcohol was working. I'd buy a car and make exactly three car payments, then come find it. Come find it. First time I had a car repossessed, I had the nerve to call LAPD. I'm nine months behind on the note, right? Next two times, I didn't even trip. I already knew. I'm the kind of brother that never had a problem balancing a bank book. Hey, I got money. Two days later, broke. Zero. No problem balancing my bank book. Stayed in the crib from 1976 to 1979 without paying rent. A couple of baffling features about the disease I suffer from, one of them is this. I can't see my relationship with alcohol until I'm free of it. I can't see what it's doing to me when I'm in the mix. So some of the things that are crystal clear to me now, looking back in the rearview mirror of experience, were not at all clear to me when I was going through them. One fact stands out real clear to me about the days I thought alcohol was working. I used to go to work for two weeks to live for two days. That's it. So, can't tell you the day or the time or the hour. Can't tell you where I was or what I was doing when alcohol ceased to be a luxury for me and became a necessity. I can tell you that it did. I mean, you know what I don't like about the invisible line? It's invisible. It ain't nothing that says if you take this next one, you enter in the region from which there's no return to me. You know, but in fact, by the time you realize it's a line, it's over. You, who put that line right there? Cold thing about the disease I suffer from, you know, by the time I realize I have a problem and need to do something about it, it's already too late for me to do something about it. Damn. Anybody else in here play the regret game in Alcoholics Anonymous? Got some head nodders. The regret game in Alcoholics Anonymous goes something like this. If I only knew then what I know now, yeah, right. You know, remind me of a story I like to tell about a little boy named Johnny. Johnny had a habit his father frowned on. Johnny used to like to masturbate. Father comes home one day. Little Johnny's bedroom door was closed. Father opens the door without knocking. Sure enough, little Johnny's in the bedroom masturbating. Father looks at him and son says, son, I thought I told you if you keep doing that, you'll go blind. Little Johnny stopped and looked at his daddy and said, well, daddy, can I just do it till I need glasses? You know, and I like that. 
And I like that story because that story reminds me of me in the life. I see you going down, you going down, you going. I'm just going to do it till I need glad. Book talks about seeking the Lord companion. What long before I became the Lord companion? We ain't got enough time. Got married on a Saturday afternoon in April of 1980. Had a bachelor party the night before my wedding. None of the guys at the bachelor party are getting married the next day. All of them have sense enough to go home at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm still at my bachelor party till 7.30 in the morning, right, me and my brothers. Take me home at 7.30, pour me in the bed, get me up at 10 o'clock for my 1 o'clock wedding. Tore up. I am tore up. Supposed to say my own vows at this wedding. Apparently when I showed up, the stagger was so severe that my then wife-to-be took one look at the preacher. She looked at me. She said, okay, scratch the own vows. Say the regular on him, right? So my lines are cut to two words. Getting to the ceremony, I get ready to say, I do. I said, I threw up all over. (laughs) Passed out. Have not taken a wedding picture to this day. Pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. New friends, if you're anything like me, when I hit the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, although the words you guys use in the room are not unfamiliar to me, the way you guys use them is not the way I use them in my everyday walk around vocabulary. You guys were talking about this psychic change and this phenomenon of craving and this allergy of the body. And the way you guys use each one of those terms, I needed some help with. But the first time I heard pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, didn't need no help with that one. Folk like us don't need a dictionary for pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization. I live pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization up close and personal, and I lived it over and over and over again. See, I'm the kind of father and I'm the kind of husband. Remember sitting on my living room couch, wife coming out the bathroom real fast, pulling her pants up, go to the dining room table, pick up her purse and clutch it real close as she went back to the bathroom, and I feel this tall because nobody was in the house but me and everybody got like that in my house. I'm the kind of father and I'm the kind of husband. Remember sticking my key in the door. Wife and two-year-old daughter sitting here and they both crying. I look over here and homeboy sitting in my seat and he's got a gun pointed at my stomach talking about I want my money right now. Fellas, let me holler at you guys for just a minute. I don't know about the rest of you, but I always had a lot of fears and a lot of doubts about do I have what it takes to be a father. Do I have what it takes to be a husband? Because if you're in the life, your track record already gives you your answer, right? Because what's the father's role and what's the husband's role? To protect and to provide, and it's a cold-blooded feeling, fellas. Laying in bed with a woman night after night after night after night. Knowing not only aren't you protecting, knowing not only aren't you providing, you're the one bringing the wolf to the door. See, I'm the kind of father and I'm the kind of husband. Remember sitting on my back porch, two-year-old daughter coming outside, pulling at my coat. Daddy, daddy, that's my piggy bank. I remember stopping, giving her a little grin, don't worry, baby. Daddy's going to put some dollar bills in here for this change. And I wasn't raised to be stealing from my daughter. I wasn't raised to be stealing from my wife. I was an alcoholic with no tools of recovery. And I did what it took to get what I needed to get. Share with you that my disease is progressive in nature. And in my experience, it's progressive in a couple of areas. Share one already. It takes more than it used to take in order for me to get the same effect. But my disease is progressive in another area, my behavior. My behavior gets progressively worse. I'm willing to do more, more readily, 
chase this thing. First time I had my wife's purse, if you would hook me up to a polygraph, I would have passed when I told you. I'm not stealing this $40. I'm going to take this money, and I'm going to replace it before she knows it's missing. Men it with everything in me because I don't steal. You know, I was looking at the book back there. I like AA history. I like the fact that we have a history. I like the fact that we keep that history alive. You know, and I especially like the fact that what holds us and binds us is clearly divinely inspired. And we see that in hindsight. In 1934, a guy found himself in the hospital for the fourth time. Like I imagine some of the people in this section have been in treatment centers several times. He found himself in the same hospital, same doctor. And when he went in the town's hospital this December in 1934, the doctor told his old lady, get a black dress. Dude may not be coming out. Hope your insurance is paid up. Bill Wilson said when he heard the doctor tell that to his wife, he almost welcomed the idea. And something happened to him that December in 1934. When he described it later on, he called it, he said it was like a cold wind blew through the closed windows, like a bright light came on in the room. And when he recounted the experience he had to the doctor the next day, check this out, didn't happen to the doctor. Doctor had seen this act before, but something was going on that December in 1934, Towns Hospital. Bill Wilson recounted the story, and I'm glad it happened to Bill and it didn't happen to me. Because if I'd have had experience like that, I'd have been like, oh, that's one of them PCP flashbacks, and y'all would have a different speaker. <laughs> Wouldn't be no AA today, so I'm glad it happened to him. You know, and uh, he recounted what happened to the doctor. And the doctor, check this out, from the outside looking in, said to Bill Wilson, dude, I don't know what happened to you, but you would look good holding on to it. And Bill Wilson left Towns Hospital, and he said about looking for people like me and you. Six months' time, got a friend of mine, Bob D., and Bob says, this is his understanding, the bill went to about 96 drunks. I don't know if I would have reached nine or if I would have reached six. He went to about 96 drunks, preaching at him. You need to get sober. You need to get sober. You know, you need to have the same white light experience I had. I imagine they was like, dude, you messing up my high. Go. Keep going, you know. <laughs> nobody stay sober. And in that six-month period of time, nobody got sober. In that six-month period of time, some of the people he used to do business with put together a business opportunity. They said, we want you to represent our interests out of town. And he traveled to Akron, Ohio. And if his business had come off well, he would have been set. Trust me, he needed to be set. And his business didn't come off too well. And he found himself in a hotel lobby. Could see the bar from the lobby. And he got thirsty. Had about $10 in his pocket. Don't know if he had enough to pay for the room. Try to pay for the room. Get a drink. Check out. When we can look back in history, in hindsight, we can see the finger at work. But in the moment, it's probably just a desperate guy that don't want to drink. And a thought came. Crazy thought. He said, I need to find a drunk not to drink. Now, he had been looking for 90, he had been talking to 96 drunks to get them to stop drinking. That night, when he got thirsty, he said, I need to find a drunk so I don't drink. That's alcoholic. That's, that's, that's who we are. 
That's what we do. He said, I need to find a drunk not to drink. And through a series of divine coincidences, he got put in touch with a lady who had a husband like us. And he talked to Ann Smith on the horn, and, and he like, I understand you got a husband with a drinking problem. Dr. Bob passed out. Tell dude I'll meet with him 15 minutes tomorrow. They met that next day. That 15 minutes turned into about five hours, five and five and a half hours. And those two gentlemen said about looking for people like me and you. They counted noses in, nine, you know, in 1937, two years into this endeavor. And they said, it's about 40 people staying sober between Akron, Cleveland, and New York. It's about 40 people staying sober. And I like to think the New York hustler must have looked at the Akron physician and said, how are we going to let Ralph White know when it's his time? And they said, we'll put it in a book. And they put me in that book. I still get chills. They started writing that book in 1937. They published that book in 1939. I hit this earth sometime after that. I hit you guys sometime after that. And they put me in that book. Two weeks after I said I'm going to replace this money before she knows it's missing, I'm out doing what I do. I run out of money. I came home looking for some more money. Book describes me to a T. It says, we don't know why alcoholic could be unable to recall with sufficient force, pain, suffering, humiliation, weeks, even days ago. The idea of replacing the money didn't come to mind. I had a new thought. Last time I took $40, came back looking for the purse, and she had moved it. This time I'll take all the money out the purse. That that I don't spend up, I'll sneak it back in the purse. I'm off and running to hit my wife's purse on a regular. Did it one too many times, came home one morning, screen door was locked with a note on it. Rest of your stuff is at your mama's house. Suitcase on the porch, I'm put out of my house, I'm now my daddy. Over the course of the next year, my five brothers got put out of their respective homes. All of us ended up in my mama's house and we damn near killed her. Mom had a nervous breakdown that year of 1985. When I was staying at my mom's house, when I got put out of my house and went to stay at my mom's house, my ex-wife thought it was something salvageable about this piece of man she married. She would bring my daughter over on Saturday so we could keep a father-daughter relationship. And I wanted to be a father to my little girl with everything in me. I really, really, really did. I wanted to take my girl to Disneyland, and I wanted to take her to Magic Mountain. I wanted to take her to a movie on a Saturday afternoon. I wanted to walk up the street with her little hand in my big hand, just take her to the store and buy her some ice cream. I wanted to sit her in my lap and read stories to her. I wanted to tuck her in bed at night and get a good night kiss. I wanted to get the look from my little girl that I've seen men in the fellowship get, the look like this is my daddy and this is my hero. And the best I could do on those Saturdays was 30 minutes. 30 minutes. Tell my mom something like I'm going to the store to buy rain some ice cream. I disappear. I sneak back on Sunday night when her mom was coming to get her. Still remember some of them long Sunday nights sticking my head around the side of my mom's house, tears flowing. And I see those two heads in the car and those headlights backing out the driveway. And through the tears, I'd be thinking to myself, there goes my life backing out this driveway. And I've heard a lot of people share they were scared of dying out there. Not my story. Never scared of dying. Scared I was going to keep waking up to the same old thing. Monday the same as Tuesday the same as Sunday the same as Christmas. Over and over and over again. And I'm so glad God don't make misery comfortable. And on October the 11th, 1986, I got miserable enough. I got tired enough. I got directed to my fourth program of recovery. I went to the Harbor Life Center on Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. And that October in 1986... I was in a real bad way, and I was in a real dark place. I was full of remorse, and I was full of regret. I was full of I'll never be able to forgive myself for what I had done and what I had become. And they brought a speaker in 
They brought in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous into the facility on Saturday nights. And that first weekend I was in the light, they brought me to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And a speaker was standing up in front of the group, somewhat like I am tonight. And he was sharing about taking from the job. And he was sharing about taking from the family. And I remember looking at him and thinking to myself, yeah, you're sharing about doing scandalous things, but you look scandalous. You should have been doing that. I'm different. Y'all ain't going to hear my business. And the speaker seemed like he knew I was in the room. He dropped something on me like this. He said, if you're sitting in this room right now, you are not responsible for your disease, but you are responsible for your recovery. And you have just now tapped into a source of power much greater than yourself. And you don't have to drink and you don't have to use no matter what provided you are willing to fulfill some conditions. That speaker that night caught my attention. He went on to say, this is the only club you can be a member of. The worse off you are when you get here, better off your chances of staying. And I got the message of hope from the first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous they took me to. He described to me what I suffered from. He did it in a real strange way. He was talking about me, talking about himself. I had never seen anything like it. I still never see anything like it. It's what we do. It's what we do talking about me, talking about himself. And I learned some anatomical facts about a guy named Ralph. When you get Ralph White, I would like to say anything you hear out of my mouth is going to come from the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. But I ain't, you know, when you get me, you get all of me. Most of what I know about recovery comes from the big book Alcoholics Anonymous or from members in Alcoholics Anonymous who share with me their experiences, filter through that. But you get Ralph White's experiences too. I bring you 32 years of experience. And I'm going to share something from the big book of Ralph White's experience. I learned some anatomical facts about a guy named Ralph. I learned that when my behind is raw, my ears open and my mouth closes. When my behind starts healing, my mouth starts running, my ears start going. Thank God I was tenderized well enough, long enough this last time. When I got back, I heard the music. I heard the music. And the speaker was standing in front of the group saying there's something physically different about me. And seemed like he invited me to diagnose myself. I was taking it personal in a good way. He would seem like he said, Ralph, don't take my word for it. How many times did you say, I'm just going to spend 20? What happened? Whole paycheck. How many times did you say, I'm going to just stop off at happy hour? What happened? Whole paycheck. How many times did you say, I'm going to stop off over here at my boy Tim's house for a minute? What happened? Whole paycheck. Ralph, did it happen once? Did it happen twice? If your name is Ralph, every two weeks from 1979, 1985, whole paycheck. My experience, not yours, not my sponsors, not the oldest old timer in the room. My experience abundantly confirms for me when I take one of anything, no matter where I have to go, what I have to do, who I have to see, no matter how great the wish or the necessity. My body takes over and I got to have another. Okay, smart guy, if it's just my body, how do you explain stone sober? My car seemed to drive to the LIQ on payday. Second part of this disease, the obsession that somehow, someday, I will be able to control and enjoy this magic potion I discovered all those many years ago. Somebody help me with that. Where's this control and enjoy coming from? Anytime I was controlling, I wasn't enjoying. Anytime I was enjoying, I damn sure wasn't controlling. I can't drink because of my body. I can't not. My mind refused to accept that fact. I'm powerless. Third part is disease, spiritual malady. 12 and 12 describes it as a soul sickness. And in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, this is Ralph. If you work on the spiritual, the mental, and the physical are straight now. That's what we do. Don't get scared. Somebody thinking, damn, the speaker almost had me. <laughs> almost had me, but he getting ready to hit me with the G word. Did not come here for that. Ain't feeling that. Ain't trying to feel that. You can dress it up any kind of way you want. You can call it good orderly direction. You can call it universal theory of the universe. You can call it higher power. But I know what you're talking about. You're talking about God, and I did not come here for that. Yeah, Mr. Speaker, with your 32 years, the God word just slides out your mouth, but you don't understand me. Check this out. I did not come up in here walking toward the light. I came up in here running from the fire, and if your ass is on fire, this is the 
place for you to be right now, too. So I started my journey, man, you know, and, I, and I'm not tonight's speaker. You know, I don't know where we're going to go from this, but I'm not tonight's speaker because I'm the one that's trying to scare you in the recovery. I'm not tonight's speaker because I'm the one, if you go back out there, still kicking it. You know, that ain't my story. In fact, in what I used to think of as my heyday, people used to look at the way I was getting down and be like, damn, Ralph, ain't you scared of overdose? I'd be like, scared of overdose? I'm scared of the deadly underdose. You better put some more up on here. So the message of fear is not the message of the whole alcoholic of my variety. The book talks about a message that interests a guy like me is a message that's got depth and that's got weight and the message tonight's speaker brings to you that's got the most depth and the most weight you're looking at a guy who at 33 years old had given up on life you're looking at a guy who at 33 years old did not know where his little girl was enrolled in school and didn't know where his family was living you're looking at a guy who at 33 years old had not answered anybody's 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock wake up call to go to work in so long I no longer thought I was employable you're looking at a guy who came from a major university in this country and my job at the end was taking the trash out for a 21-year-old. I was sleeping in the back of my mother's garage and I was eating lemons off a neighbor's lemon tree for breakfast. And the men and women in this fellowship met me in that condition. And you loved me and you nursed me back to health. You gave me a way out. You said something in the meetings I found really strange in my first home group. You know, they used to say, let us love you till you can love yourself. I did not believe that one. I came to you, toe up, and I stink. If you turn your back on me, I'm liable to go up in your purse. How you gonna tell me you'll love something like this? How you going to tell me you'll love something like me? That was before I knew what takes place in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. That was before I knew what happens when the God in you reaches out to the God in me. That was before I knew that in Alcoholics Anonymous, we specialize in loving unlovable people. And you loved me, and you nursed me back to health. You gave me something. You know, I've been doing this thing for a little while, you know, and, and although I'm dead serious about recovery, I'm seldom serious in recovery. If you ain't laughing in this program, you ain't taking this program serious enough. If you get somebody and you bring them up here and they can't, you know, I don't trust somebody who A, can't laugh and B, can't laugh at themselves. You know, I, you, I, 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 I'm dead serious. I was on a panel with a guy. Tom I. He's probably on a picture back there somewhere. And at the time we were on the panel together, Tom had 55 years. And there was a Q&A that went around. And the Q&A question that came to Tom was, Tom, in your 55 years, what's the most important thing you found in that time in Alcoholics Anonymous? He didn't say something long. He didn't say something flowery. Tom I said one word. He said enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. All you sponsors out there, all you thumpers out there, all you working with other people. If, damn it, if it's supposed to be a program of attraction, make it attractive. Me walking up here, there ain't no easier, softer way. No, this is the easier, softer way. If this thing wasn't fun, you'd have a different speaker up here tonight, you know. I'm going to share some things that I want you to put in your I'm going to share some things for our new friends. I want you to put them in your simple kit of spiritual tools. I had a new friend that I just met. He's sitting back there. I want you to put this in your simple kit of spiritual tools, all our new friends. First thing I want you to do, get a sobriety day. If you ain't got one, you don't have one. Somebody come up to you and say, what's your sobriety date? You'd be like, uh, you ain't got one. (laughs) Protect it, respect it, grow it. Get a sobriety date. Then get a home group. Home group is something like a cheers bar, somewhere you go where everybody know your name. (laughs) Then get a sponsor. These days, we have a lot of interviewing techniques and requirements that we put on newcomers. Get a sponsor who has a sponsor who has working. And I'm not making light of sponsorship. It's a, it's, it's a heartbeat. It's the backbone of what it is we do. But check this out. Get a sponsor whether you know all the techniques or not because there's power in the conversation. 
There's power in the transaction. We know you. Do we see you. Grown-ass man can't tell me nothing. We know that's why you're up in here with us. Get a sponsor. There's power in help me. There's power in I don't know. Get a sponsor. Then get a road dog. Road dog is something different than your sponsor. Sometimes it morphs into, sometimes a sponsor morphs into, sometimes it don't. And plus, when you knew, you know, you try to come correct to your sponsor. No, sir, I'm not looking at girls in the meeting, but with your road dog, you'd be like, man, did you see them honeys at that meeting? We're going back to that meeting, you know. And that's who you took. That's who you talk about your sponsor to. So get a road dog, man. You know, if this thing wasn't fun, I'd have somebody else. Do. And I have my brother, Ron, who's ahead of me, three months, a year younger than me. My boy, Strange, we're still here 32 years later. Get a road dog. You know, this thing is, a, you, you know, if, like I say, if this thing wasn't fun, you'd have a different speaker here tonight. You know, I'm on fi- I still am on fire for Alcoholics Anonymous. I still am in awe and cannot believe that the life I've been afforded as a result of coming here. You know, and... and I, we got a broad third tradition. I like to talk about it. You know, we got a very broad third tradition. It's a wonderful tradition. The only requirement for membership is the desire to stop drinking. The minute you express a desire, you're on the team. You are on the team. Can't nobody put you off. And you don't have to wait for the coach to tell you on the team. Ain't no tryouts, ain't no auditions. Well, yeah, there are. We've already done it. You know, don't worry about that. And you know, you own the team. Can't nobody put you off. And that's a wonderful thing. That's a broad umbrella. But check this out. Everybody that's on the team ain't in the game. Put me in the game. Put me in the game. Well, damn, Mr. Speaker, what are you talking about? Put me in the game. You know, now I'm not knocking it. We need bench warmers. We, we, we need fans, we need spectators, we even need haters. We even need people who commentate on the game and think that puts them in the game. But put me in the game. I'm never a guy who's a sideline guy. I've never been a guy that's on the periphery. What I get in, I get in. I collected baseball cards as a kid. I can tell you what Elgin Baylor averaged in his best year in the NBA. You know, I subscribe to High Times. I'm a student of my craft. Whatever I get into, I get all the way into. Why be in a 12-step program and not get in the 12 steps? You know, so I'm going to put me in the game. Fellas, I can't even go to strip clubs because I don't like looking. Put me in the game. I'm not a spectator guy. I'm not a spectator. Put me in the game. Well, dude, what does that put me in the game look like? What does that feel like? And why put me in the game anyway? You know, I got on my knees a year and a half sober, just like I was. That's what I like. So much. I don't know if religion says no disrespect to any religions either. I'm telling you about this guy's perception. And I don't know if a religion said when you, you know, when you sign up to join our organization, you agree and you promise to do some stuff right now. It felt like religion said to me, you got to come right to get right already. You agree to stop sinning. You agree to stop doing this. You agree to stop doing that. And Alcoholics Anonymous, when I got on my knees, get on your knees right now. Still tricking, get on your knees. Still get on your knees. Still lying, get on your knees. I got on my knees in that condition, and I said, God, I offer myself to you. Do something with your boy. I turned myself in. I gave up on me. I surrendered to this, and I made a promise to submit to the rest of this process, to turn over my will and my life. You know, I, I, I got out to seat. I got out the will. My friend Teresa says, I resigned from the CEO. I'm no longer the CEO of Ralph Inc. I gave it up. 
I got on my knees, put me in the game. I said, I offer myself to you to do something with me. Relieve me of what the real deal is. In the third step, we don't say relieve me of the desire to drink alcohol. Relieve me of that, that thirst, that insatiable thirst. Relieve me of the bondage of self. That's what the whole rest of the thing is about. This, this self-deal. This abandonment of self. The religion, you know, religion, the spiritual currency is different than material currency. You know, spiritual growth and spiritual, it's, it's not measured in acquisition. Every time we talk about spiritual growth and development, we talk about it in terms of reading, abandoning. Spiritual math is about subtraction. It's about subtraction. Relieve me of the bondage of self. And I got on this road and I got in the game. I got in the game. And as a result of this power doing what it is that he does. See, he don't need my permission to change me, but he needs my cooperation. And I've been cooperating. And as a result of that, five years ago, talk about putting me in the game. That two-year-old daughter whose piggy bank I was going in, she's 35 years old. She's a practicing attorney in the state of California. She walked down the aisle five years ago. And we were walking down the aisle and the music was playing and she was on my arm and she was shaking. We were talking as we were walking down the aisle. She said, Dad, this is the happiest day of my life. I'm just sad about one thing. I said, what's that, baby? She said, this is the last day I'll ever be rain white, but I'll always be daddy's girl. Put me in the game. Put me in the goddamn game. I got a 23-year-old daughter at home that's never seen her daddy loaded, and one day at a time she never will. Last May, it was about 15 of us, you know, and we were in Boston, and we were thick, you know, hollering, making a fool, hey, and my daughter was walking across the stage at Boston University, and she was graduating from BU, and, and in her sophomore year, you know, she moved out of the dorms and moved into a house with two roommates. Carrie, I want you to have your moment. I know it's hard for you to hold your head up tonight, baby, but I want you to have your moments. I want you to have your moments, new friends. It's many people in this room that know when grace comes calling these days, and I'll call it by name, when it comes calling in your life. And every now and then, it'll just ambush you. And we were moving the kids into the house, right? And the other parents were there, me and my brother, we were moving my daughter. I had to step in the bathroom. It just came on me. And I'm not a crying man, but I was a crying man. I was in the bathroom, it came on me. This is what dads do. They don't go in piggy banks. They move their little girls into their first place. When, we, when I gave her driving lessons, that grace came the same way. Put me in the goddamn game. Put me in the game. My daughter's pregnant with my second biological grandson. Artist Reed, I took him on Halloween. He's my grandson. He's four. And he's in the car talking about granddaddy. You know what? It's some grands in here. You know what? If I knew grands were so cool, I'd have had them first. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he says, granddaddy. Put me in the game. Put me in the goddamn game. 22 years sober. I don't know what time I started, Bill, so you might have to I'm usually pretty cool, but give me something. Um, 22 years sober, I went through my third valley in recovery. Thought they needed a sober living for old timers. Lost a 20-year marriage. Lost my house in front of everybody. Because I live out loud now, I'm a transparent guy. 
Lost all my money. Learned some valuable lessons in the valley. I learned you can grow where you planted. I learned that God didn't save me from that cesspool to let me drown in the bathtub. Learned how to make it through those days one day at a time. It was days, man. The only thing I had on my resume was at least I made it to a meeting. My sponsor says sometimes you go out to be the message that you carry. And if the message that you carry is God can handle anything, guess what? Sometimes you're just going to have to have something for him to handle. And I got armed with what it is that we get armed with. It's our greatest asset. See, we ain't useful because of our successes. We're useful because of our experience. We're useful through our adversities. And when I got on my knees, I said, take away my difficulties. The victory over them may bear witness to those I would help. So I come to talk to you, and if you're in here right now, I come to tell you if the IRS come after you for 80000 you ain't got a drink. I come to tell you you can lose a 20-year marriage, and you ain't got a drink. I come to tell you you can lose your house in front of everybody, and you ain't got a drink. I tell you you can go broke in money, and you ain't got a drink. The message I used to carry was, you know, I ain't my stuff. Got put to the test when my stuff was gone. I laughed every day. I used to say it all the time, Leslie reminds me. And every single one of those days I got up in the morning, somebody in a dark place right now. Somebody thinking if the money don't come in in a week, if the kids don't start, if he don't start, is it all right right now? Right now. Not next week. Not two weeks. Not tomorrow. Right now. While this long-winded guy's at the post, is it all right? Right now. Every right now kept being all right. All right. I learned some valuable lessons in the valley. I was going out to Chicago, I was going somewhere, and I was on a layover in O'Hare Airport, going to talk to a group like us about this power. I was in O'Hare Airport, my college roommate's dad had died, and I'd heard about it, so I called him. I learned some stuff about me. I love learning stuff about me. I stay open to learning stuff about me. Uh, I read a quote the other day, Einstein. He said, the only thing that stands in the way of my learning is my education. (laughs) Think on that a minute. I'm in O'Hare Airport, and I call my my college roommate. His dad had died. I'm talking to John. I learned something. I learned when I'm all right, it's okay for you to be all right. I wasn't all right. John was talking to me on the horn, and he was telling me, yeah, he still had all his properties. He was moving his daughter in the gas. And every time he was sharing something with me that was good news, it was cutting me like a knife. I was feeling something that was unfamiliar to me. I hadn't felt it in a long time. I was really getting resentful at him. I was envious, and I was jealous. And I got off the phone. I'm crying in O'Hare Airport. Can't call God. It's like when you're in some cell phone, you know how sometimes you don't have no cell reception? You don't know nobody's number? Sometimes you ain't got no grace reception. Too much resentment, no grace reception. Too much fear, no grace reception. I was in O'Hare Airport, and if one of you had walked through and saw me and was like, Ralph, this too shall pass, I would have socked you in the face. I'm not trying to hear that O'Hare You know how sometimes you find yourself saying that? Don't miss me with that. You know, but, but I got trained feet. I got trained feet. That's what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. Train your feet. 
disease centers in my thinking, recovery centers in my feet. I got trained feet. So no matter what it is I'm going through, I'm crying in no air. I'm going to call my sponsor. I'm going to call a close by friend. I got a network of friends. I call my boy Stan. And I got, he, he got on the line. I'm going to give you this one. When you hit the dead zone, when you hit a spiritual dead zone, too much resentment, too much fear, too much self-pity, put them all together, you're really in a dead zone, you know, and you can't pray and you can't reach out. I called my boy, and this is what happened. I guarantee you it would happen for you too. I called my boy, and he three-wayed me. God got on the line. Whenever it's two or more of us together, he'll get on the line. When it's this many of us sitting in here, right, he's on the line. You'll get on the line. That's why, baby, we don't do this by ourselves. It's times I'm going to hit the dead zone. He'll get on the line. And he got on the line. And I went to the, where it was I was going, and all you were there. It's on the line. I learned a valuable lesson in the valley. And I had some stuff behind me that makes me the, you know, four phases of my spiritual development. They match the four phases of my prayer life. Prayer one, help me. And almost all of us get here on a variation of that prayer. Help me. Phase two, grant me. Give me. Grant me peace. Grant me the serenity. Give me peace. Grant me. Phase two. Phase three, grow me. Phase four, use me. Highest phase. Highest caller in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's the most we get. Use me. Use me. And I am so grateful that you guys gave me something um, that you can't take away. Uh, you ask us, I'm going to speak for the speakers. You task us with something that's really an impossibility when you ask us to come out and talk to you. You ask us to give voice to that for which there is no voice and to give words to that for which there, is no, there are no words. You can't put in words the spiritual experience. How do you explain and describe grace? My friend Strange says you can't describe the taste of a banana. And so what each one of us do in our own words and to the best of our ability, we get up to this podium. You do it too. And for our new friends and for those who may be coming to us, we try to describe what it tastes like when we bite into that banana. And we try to make it sound so delicious and so tantalizing. You want to get your own banana. You want to get your own banana. New friends, Something's going on in here that you don't see. Something's going on in here that's bigger than what it is all of us see right now. We think we see what's going on in here. Just like the disease is progressive, so is recovery. Just like the disease touches all whose lives touch the sufferers, so does the recovery. It's amazing how when I get better, you get better. So although I didn't come for the ripples... I stay for the ripples. I don't always think about it, but sometimes when I'm at a meeting, I kind of imagine it. If you look real close, you look real close, because every time I go to a meeting, I'm not the only one getting better. I'm not the only one that's changing, and I'm not the only one benefiting. If you look real close, 
You see a four-year-old little boy right here. Artist Reed. If you look real close, there's an 88-year-old lady. I have no scientific evidence to prove it. But she had a nervous breakdown in 1985. Four of her sons came to you over 30 years ago. And that 88-year-old lady is still alive and kicking. If you look real close, you see her. If you look really close, look really close, you see a 23-year-old young lady and a 35-year-old young lady whose lives have been transformed by Alcoholics Anonymous. When I look real close out there, I see moms and I see kids. If you look real close, and I've always wanted to do something important, and I've always wanted to do something significant, and I can think of nothing more important and nothing more significant than being a participating member of the life-saving, life-changing activity that is Alcoholics Anonymous. Whenever anybody anywhere reaches out for help, I want the hand A to be there for that. I'm responsible. I take it real serious. You'll never hear Ralph White say, I don't know why I'm sober. I know exactly why I'm sober. I get a blessing so that I can be a blessing. Recovery for me is a gift from God. What I do with my recovery that's my gift to God. My name is Ralph. I am an alcoholic. Yeah.